Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, and today I am joined by Mickey. Hey, everyone. And Fry. Hello. Today we are going to be talking about the Trade Federation, or let's explore globalization through the Star Wars prequels, a play by Andy Boyd, who will be joining us in a moment. A lot of people these days, you often hear things like, why do you have to make things so political, or you should keep your politics out of Star Wars, and I have always been of the belief that politics is inherent in Star Wars, and I think a cheeky but very apt and very well done demonstration of this is Mr. Boyd's play that we're going to be talking about today. So I'd like to introduce Andy Boyd and welcome him to Trash Compactor. Sure, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk about the play. So Andy, you're a playwright based out of Brooklyn. You're a podcaster. I also um, uh, write songs and I, I make little cartoons, which I've hosted on my Instagram page. Those are my main, my main uh, media. So you're an overall just around creative guy. I can get behind that. I admire that very much. Um, so if you could do the horrible, horrible thing of, could you tell us what your play, The Trade Federation, or Let's Talk About Globalization to the Star Wars prequels, is about the logline, you might say? Sure, yeah. So to give a little backstory on how I wrote the play, I was in grad school. The point of grad school is to write a lot. And I came across some article, I think it was in the AV club, that was like making fun of the prequels, you know, in advance of some new Star Wars thing. And one of the things they said about it was like, it's so dumb how much time they spend talking about trade negotiations. And I was sort of like, wait, do they? That sounds great to me. I mean, I think that... I, I remember episode one being like a huge disappointment, but if they spend a lot of time talking about trade negotiations, maybe maybe it would have uh, grown on me by now. Um, so I went back and I checked it out and and I kind of discovered that the problem with it wasn't that they talk about it too much, but they talk about trade negotiations too vaguely. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Sorry. You're really speaking my language right now, so I couldn't help it. Specificity is the soul of narrative, and there's just not a lot of specificity in those uh, you know, boardrooms on top of starship uh scenes in the in the prequel movies. But I basically was like, well, what if that actually was the movie? You know, what if there was actually, you know, a, a movie about Star Wars that actually was about the trade negotiations and was about the economy of Star Wars and like the balance of power between the different intergalactic uh, economies and stuff like that. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of like this silly idea I had. And then, you know, what really kind of cracked it open for me was the idea that like, what's funny to me about it is I keep telling people about this idea and they keep telling me that it's a dumb idea. And so I should put that in the play. We'd had somebody come into our class named Brandon Jacob Jenkins, who's a fantastic playwright. And he said, you know, when you're having a problem writing, give the play the problem. And so the problem was that everybody thought this was a bad idea and they thought it sounded boring. And so I kind of made it a play about me pitching this script to George Lucas uh, that is, you know, eventually becomes known as the Trade Federation of Star Wars story. Uh, and he doesn't like it and he throws me out of his office and then chaos ensues after that. Um, so that was kind of the this sort of meta theatrical conceit of the play that jumps back and forth between kind of the pitch meeting and the kind of scenes within my script. And it was also, you know, I was taking like screenwriting classes uh, in the film department um, and I found them mostly like pretty boring and I found the film people mostly pretty boring and like sort of only interested in craft and some director would come in and be like, this is the film that I made that is, you know, about me and my brother and the horrible abuse we suffered in our childhood in Cambodia. And then all the questions would be like, what size lens did you use and what was your budget and stuff? So part of this is like me 
you know, I don't live in LA. I live in New York. I'm not trying particularly hard to break into screenwriting, but this is sort of like an alternate reality version of me where I am trying to, you know, make it uh, in LA as a screenwriter, despite having like all the same interests and limitations that I do in my real life, which is just, I just want to write, you know, super communist agitprop theater all day, every day. And I want that to be my full-time job, which you're starting to maybe see the source of some of my difficulty. <laughs> well, you're doing it very well. I don't know about oh, the making thanks. a living part, but um, were you a Star Wars fan before you wrote this? Did you consider yourself a Star Wars fan? There was some dialogue to that effect in the play, but I wasn't sure how yeah. true to life it was. Yeah, so I was born in 1991, which means that when episode one came out in 1999, I was like seven or eight years old, which is the best, the best age. The perfect for, age. The perfect for age. For that film. Yeah. You know, I was like basically the same age that Anakin is in the film. And I'd already seen, my dad had like made sure that I'd seen, you know, the original trilogy before that. And like, I remember we had, we had like a book that my dad would like read me before bed and it had all the names from episode one, but it hadn't come out yet. So he was like, I don't know, Quiquan, is that, is that close? Uh, and then we sort of found out the same thing happened with Harry Potter where it's like, oh, it's not Hermione, you know? So yeah, I was, I was really into Star Wars as a kid. I, I'm, I'm now, you know, I still see all the movies, but I don't like keep track a lot with the sort of extended universe and, you know, the video games and all of that stuff. But, you know, I feel like Star Wars is one of the like franchises where it's like, yeah, I mean, I've seen what at this point fourteen or fifteen Star Wars films, so I'm not a huge fan. <laughs> you know, I've only spent cumulative days watching these films, um, and you know, many of them I've seen multiple times and stuff. But yeah, I would say I'm like a I like a high to medium Star Wars fan, but not like a knows everything about all the canon. There was nothing that I felt I knew about Star Wars that got erased in the re-canonization process that made me mad. So that's the level of. That gives you a sense, yes. Yeah, no, no, that gives me a perfect sense. Well, so the first production was uh, Columbia University, right? And then you, this is according to yes. the notes in the print version, and then there was uh, two, like, at least a couple, like, workshop productions. Um, uh -huh. I was curious, like, what is the, what is uh, the, like, original version look like versus now? Was the uh, pitch part, like, put in in some of those work workshop productions? No, that was, or was the that original... Yeah, that was in the original production. It's not a whole lot different, actually. I mean, I made some, you know, some changes that felt significant to me. But if you read the version that was originally staged at Columbia and you read this version, it's recognizably the same play. There weren't huge structural overhauls or anything like that. I think the main reason we did so many workshops was like not so much that like I felt like the play needed a lot of work as like I would send three or four plays to a director and they'd be like, oh, let's do that Star Wars one, you know? <laughs> so um you know, I'm not complaining. I It's definitely found more of an audience than anything else I've ever written. And I hope that that leads them to check out my other stuff. But yeah, it's definitely been the one that people have been most excited to get their hands on and, and you know, when opportunities to get my work in front of an audience present themselves, whether it's a kind of stage reading or a fall production, I tend to say yes. And so, and, and those workshops were helpful. I mean, I don't want to say that they were just but I think somebody said something once to me that I think is like very important for playwriting and probably other forms of art too, which is like whenever you're doing a like workshop process, you know, there's like three possible goals that you can have. And one is like basically auditioning your play for a theater or an artistic director. And another one is like working on the play, you know, as, a, as part of your writing process. And the third is like you want to do a show, but you don't have enough money or time to do the full production. And a lot of them were sort of number three, which was, which was a lot of fun. And it gave me a chance to like work with a bunch of different actors and try out some stuff. And um, there's, a, there's a moment of 
in audience interaction at the end. And man, a great way to liven up a stage reading is to give give your audience something to throw stuff at. Uh, <laughs> it really, really gets the blood pumping. I, I have a question about that in terms of, I don't know anything about plays, I guess, playwriting or anything in terms of like doing like political, you know, Marxist playwriting. Is that a thing? Is that like a community? Is there a lot of that going on? And then like, I'm kind of curious, is like, is that whole audience participation? Is that like part of it? Is that kind of, is, is there a political bent to that? Either just you uniquely, or if that's something part of a movement. To me, it seems like it is. To me, I can imagine something in the 60s in Paris, like people doing like, oh yes, if you do a play, if, if you do a Maoist play, you're not introducing the audience, you're, you're a bourgeoisie or something. Yeah, I don't know about audience participation specifically, but certainly like, there is a tradition in left-wing theater of acknowledging the audience, you know? Uh, I mean, whether that's in Brecht or Piscata or San Francisco Mime Troupe or whatever, like, there's not usually much of a fourth wall. And I think that's true in a lot of my work, that it's, you know, addressing the audience either explicitly or implicitly. As far as, like, a community, there's there are definitely some... My buddy Aeneas Sagar-Hempel is a great example my friend Hale Roshan is an is an anarchist, uh, but you know a comrade, I would say. Uh, so you know, there's a, there's a small, hearty group. Uh, another friend of mine, Willie Johnson, and I co-host a reading series in Brooklyn where we try to program as much kind of left wing theater as we can. So yeah, there's some, and there's certainly a tradition. You know, there's certainly like a well established like lineage that I feel like my stuff is kind of you know, in conversation with from, you know, starting with people like that, like Brecht and 60 Street Theater and stuff like that, but going into, you know, Carol Churchill and Tony Kushner and Wallace Shawn and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I don't feel totally lonely. And, and if I ever get tenure, I'm going to, I'm going to teach like a, like a Marxist theater class and, you know, one day. Wallace Shawn, (laughs) Grand Nagazek of the Ferengi. Yeah. I guess that, that would be about my extent of (laughs) knowledge of, uh, yeah, left wing theater is well. Uh, I guess I would say I don't it's think it's really any, at least within the last thirty years, like any filmmaking, <laughs> like that's truly you know from a true left wing perspective. Certainly not in TV or anything. So I was wondering if there's if it's almost like the one bastion you have as like a a writer in that you know in a performative space to actually do something like this. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a low budget enough art form that you don't need you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it, which certainly helps, you know, when you don't need capital <laughs> and it's easier to avoid capital, the other, you know. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that shapes, that fact actually shapes a lot of the political or ideological flavor of what we do see. Like the biggest movie in a long time is is Top Gun Maverick. And off the top of my head, I don't know what the budget of that was. I'm sure it was probably in the neighborhood of $300 million, right? And it's very interesting because it seems to me, as far as like Hollywood is concerned, that's like a politically neutral movie, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, when in reality, it's actually a very ideological movie. And I'm sure that I'm sure the military had a direct hand in like, you know, I'm sure there were. Oh, for sure. Consultants yeah, but it's consulting. Yeah, you don't get that, that equipment without. What, <laughs> well, what I so, enjoyed about it, though, is that when I when I saw it with with all my labor council uh, bros, <laughs> still enjoyed it. Um, they had a Air Force ad in front of it before this Navy movie, played, which I felt was like that would be something going on there. Little little jab. <laughs> That's funny. No, no, yeah. Which to be clear, like my singling out of Top Gun Maverick is not to say that it's not a good movie that you shouldn't be allowed to enjoy. Because if your criteria for enjoying a work of art 
or a movie was that you had to agree with its ideological underpinnings, like you would literally not be able to watch or read or enjoy anything. <laughs> but so because we are talking about the politics, the play is essentially about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, mm -hmm. and sort of the neoliberalization of the world after the end of the Cold War. Could you sort of explain for maybe someone who's not versed in the politics, like what this is a parable about? Like what sure, happened? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is my caveat on this is like I am essentially a comic playwright and not an economist or a historian. Understood, but, understood. Yes. But I also think it's important to say uh, this shit is not as complicated as they want us to believe, you know, and it's important that we make a good effort to try to understand how like international finance works. So the IMF is one of the Bretton Woods institutions, which was founded at a conference shortly after World War II, along with the World Bank. And so what the International Monetary Fund does is they lend money to countries that are going through financial difficulties, then they get paid that money back, ideally. There are also all these conditions that are tacked onto these loans. You know, so it'll be like, okay, we'll give you this emergency bailout, but you have to privatize your energy system. You have to introduce competition in your postal service. You have to you know, introduce privatization in your healthcare system. You have to loosen water regulations. You have to open up to foreign investment. So it does become, you know, some have argued <laughs> a vessel for US imperial interests and a way for us to say, okay, if this country doesn't want to allow our companies to invest there and to, you know, extract their resources and the labor power of their citizenry. You know, let's just wait around until they get felled by one of the periodic crises that capitalism depends on. And then we will help them, you know, in, in big, scary air quotes, we'll help them out with this loan with a punishing interest rate and with all of these other things tacked onto it. Oftentimes, these prescriptions that they say are going to help stabilize the economy actually make things worse, kind of increase the the tailspin that they're already in, and just kind of generally fuck shit up for generations. There was a movement in the 1990s that was largely focused against the World Bank and the IMF, uh, which was the anti-globalization movement, or sometimes called the just globalization movement, which had some real successes. And really what brought them back from the precipice was the European debt crisis. And, you know, part of this too, that's really awful, I think, is that it takes these important economic decisions out of the hands of the elected governments of these countries and into this sort of shadowy international, right. which, you know, at best weakens people's faith in the democratic process and at worst fuels anti-Semitic and racist conspiracy theories that, you know, the global economy is run by a shadowy cabal because it is run by a shadowy cabal. It's just actually it's called the IMF and we know who they are and, you know, they have speaking engagements and, you know, there's no there's no hidden conspiracy. There's just an open conspiracy. Right. You know, right. you know, people have a sense like people who don't know this stuff have a sense of like, you know, it seems like everything's outside of our control and no matter who I vote for, the same policies get passed. And it's like, well, there's a reason for that, you know, which is that these multinational organizations like the IMF and the World Bank have a lot of power and can constrain governments in various ways. I'm sure part of, a lot of that was wrong, but that's, you know. Well, as, as like you stated all very clearly, but it's impressive how like even more simply and elegantly the play uh, kind of illustrates all of this. It's very accessible. <laughs> right. So no, in the well, play, the Trade Federation <laughs> is the IMF. That's the yeah. that's the allegory. The Trade Federation is the IMF and, you know, Naboo is the developing world, basically. And I even say that at one point, you know, the, the Andy character is like, and remember, for this part, it's really important to remember that... <laughs> 
the IMF is the Trade Federation. The Trade Federation is the IMF. So there's a little bit of that, you know, uh, I don't know, Adam ruins everything or John Oliver style, just like I'm going to hit you over the head with it. And that's part of the joke. But also it's I'm doing it because I think it's important and I want you to know it. <laughs> like I want you to leave the theater yeah. having some actual sense of how the IMF works and why it's bad and why, you know, you should mock people who go work for it after they graduate from Harvard or whatever. I also want to say there's a sing-along where I essentially tried to set a, a modern version of the Internationale to the melody from the Star Wars theme song. So if that at all sounds appealing to you, you know, I will say I tried. I tried to do it in my head and I couldn't I couldn't make it work myself. I'll have to see it in person <laughs> at some point. You know, I realized at a certain point that there are things that I think are in the melody that other people <laughs> don't think are the melody. So that's part of the issue there. I love how you portrayed George Lucas, because one of the things that drives me absolutely up the wall, as I alluded to in the opening, is when people complain about how, you know, a new iteration of Star Wars, how they're making it political, right? Mm -hmm. When in reality, you know, George Lucas has literally said Star Wars, his original Star Wars trilogy was yeah. was about Vietnam and the rebels mm -hmm. were the Viet Cong and the yeah. Empire was the United States military. Uh, the emperor was Nixon. It's not a coincidence that his throne room on the Death Star is shaped like an oval. It's a very political movie. I don't know how you can make a movie that has to do with you know, rebels fighting fascists and not have it like inherently there's a politics that's kind of at work there, even in the most facile depiction of it. Right. Who's so, the empire, motherfucker? You know, that's what I want to ask yeah. when people complain about yeah. this stuff. It's right. like So the conceit of the play, as you said, is you are trying to convince George Lucas to make this very fleshed out version of the Trade Federation dealing with Naboo and really get into the nitty gritty of the economics of it all, et cetera, et cetera. And he kind of rejects you at a hand. But then what I loved was he seeks you out at the end and it turns out, no, 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 you're exactly right. That that was the movie I was trying to make, but I couldn't talk about it in the office because the Disney suits have ears and there are microphones and stuff. The idea that, you know, I do think that a lot of what you're talking about, the politics in the actual episode one movie and the prequels, I think those are really there, but they're just so muddled that it doesn't come through. And setting aside, you know, aesthetic judgments about the quality of the writing or the filmmaking, I have to wonder if a part of that is not kind of the politics of George Lucas himself, I think, are muddled as they are for many liberals right like <laughs> yeah like I think, I think that's true yeah i mean making a shit ton of money will do a number on your politics i think i think george lucas in 77 is like absolutely a comrade and by 1999 i'm like uh, i think he's maybe well, maybe not so I, much i, I feel oh, like in 77 i feel like he's a you know i i think nixon did something to even the liberal brain back then and yeah. the vietnam war that even someone who is like a liberal liberal now back then was still like well like you know like the cia's evil you know because it, like all that stuff also came out too like about yeah. operation chaos and everything and even i think the most just a, the, any democrat was like you know the president's evil the war is evil you know and so i i think i mean like yeah lucas did have some he's a child of the 60s yeah. for sure lucas like, did have some statements right yeah. he's a child of the 60s right yeah I have no idea if what I'm saying is actually true, but it seems to me he's a capitalist. He's just against greed. 
And you have a line in your play that I think sums it up. Qui-Gon says, I'm confused. Capitalism is supposed to be democratic. Padme says, that's what the capitalists say. But in practice, capitalism often paves the way for fascists and dictators. And the Trade Federation is fine with that. They actually prefer a dictatorship that does what they want over a democracy that doesn't. And what George Lucas, what I think his politics are, is that we have to be good, responsible capitalists. Otherwise, we turn into fascists. We have to be nice capitalists. I think the argument that I think is not unique to him, I think it's actually very common, you know, is that the problem isn't the system inherently. The problem is that we have deregulated and taken off the guardrails and and allowed it to kind of devolve into this crony uh, capitalism or whatever you want to call it. Crony capitalism or right. Yeah. Yeah. Which Um, I think is fucking wrong. Yeah, I think that's wrong. Um, If if I may. You know, I mean, let's just imagine, let's imagine that you had, you know, a a multinational corporation that was run by an AI and, you know, and the AI had a prime directive and the prime directive of the AI was to maximize shareholder value. Like, what would they do? Like they would, they would, you know, they would pay R&D people to create more efficient processes for doing whatever it is they do, but they would also like try to smash unions. They would try to lower wages. You know, they would offshore production to places with, you know, uh, uh, cheaper uh, environmental regulations, you know, uh, you know, and they, and then sure it's the rules are bad and we need to change the rules, but like they would also lobby to make the rules in the United States more similar to what the rules are like in some place like Bangladesh, you know, they, they would, they would do all of the things that like, even if they had no, even if they're like, you know, a sort of like robot level one AI that has no feelings and like can't experience, you know, greed, like the fact that what you do as a CEO is maximize shareholder value. And that's literally the job and that people can actually get, if you're a CEO and you decide to do things that don't maximize shareholder value for some other reason, you can actually get sued because that's the job, you know? And so it's like, yeah, sure. Greed. I don't know. I mean, is Jeff Bezos a greedy man? Like, I'm sure. But if he were a robot, he would be doing the exact same stuff that he's doing now. So I just feel like the question of whether they're greedy or not, you know, it almost sort of reminds me of like when people are like, well, is this, you know, race baiting politician really a racist or are they just doing it for votes? It's like at a certain point, it doesn't fucking matter. Let's Occam's razor the thing. Like we don't, that's not a necessary component of the explanation. So we can just treat it like- Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about like, you know, you're talking about it in like Marxism sense, there is no crony capitalism. It is just there is a there is a scientific process that you have capitalism and at least a late stage capitalism. And there isn't there isn't different types of capitalism. There isn't cronies. It's just literally like, no, this is what it does. And this is what we will do. And this is what it will lead to. So what I think George Lucas's thesis, such as it is with the Star Wars prequels, is he's trying to make a warning about what can happen. So we will avoid it. But but I think the um, the naivete there is that it doesn't occur to him that it's a function of the system to always have the same end result. Right. And the, and that's and the, the sort of the 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 allegory, I think, doesn't really map onto the reality in that, because I think there's I mean, again, all this Trade Federation stuff in the actual movies is very vague and confusing. But like there seems to be something where like the Sith have corrupted the Trade Federation, et cetera. You know, when like for me, like I think. And I think that's sort of what I do in my version of it is I'm like, no, no, no. The problem is the trade federation. (laughs) Like the problem is capitalism. The problem isn't like the, you know, these evil people. Like, it's like, that's what, you know, that's, that's the enemy. It's, it's, it's. Well, I think the idea is that because the trade federation is profits above all that they can be taken advantage of. Right. 
like that the greed the prophets before people is weaponized by the the evil people the power hungry and the mad not that they're not inherently evil themselves but that when that's your primary concern it's very easy for a fascist dictator to take over i agree that that is very muddled in the movies themselves like like one of the things that I didn't even realize until like a year or two ago when I happened to rewatch The Phantom Menace was that a part of the table setting of the movie is that the Republic is sort of, you know, where the U.S. was in the 90s, right? Like it's it's just on the precipice of it all is about to fall apart. And one of the ways that I think George Lucas is actually trying to say something very provocative, but nobody realizes this. The fact that the Trade Federation, a private corporation, has representation in a Senate, the Galactic Senate. He's saying, look how bad it is. A corporation has its own senator, right? But that goes over everyone's heads. I feel like that's actually like kind of a radical thing to be saying in a multi-million dollar summer tentpole blockbuster movie. Right. That that is explicitly pitched as, uh, you know, a, a significant step on the road to fascism. Yeah. I mean, you know, his politics remain better than most people who get to make a big sci-fi epic. But yeah, I mean, for sure. I, th- I think that's I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I have my character in the play calls The Phantom Menace the great film of the anti-globalization movement. And I think there is a little right. bit of that to that. I mean, you know, there's that that was a big that was a big fear, you know, that corporations were becoming sort of quasi-governments. And I think he's reflecting just like he does in the 70s. I think he is reflecting his times. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the process of working through this play and writing it and, you know, doing the different productions of it is like. I kind of buy it at this point. Like, I kind of just think I'm right. And like, actually, Phantom Menace is is the great film of the anti-globalization movement. You know, I just, I think that he must have been, I mean, you know, just like, I'll just read the part. So yeah, um, it says, The Phantom Menace came out in 1999, the same year as the WTO riots in Chicago, the Argentine economic crisis, the inauguration of Hugo Chavez, the publication of No Logo. It's the great film of the anti-globalization movement. You'd have to be an idiot not to see the connections. And I'm kind of like, you know what? There are a lot of them. I like the idea of like Lucas. It's like, it wasn't, it's not the technology thing that made him come back to Star Wars. He was like sitting down. He watched the battle in Seattle. He picked up some Naomi Klein. And he's like, oh shit, I got to get back at it. The world needs new Star Wars now. (laughs) The world needs me. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And you know, I mean, who are the Gungans? I think the Gungans are third world resistance movements. So, you know, the idea that like the way that, yeah, the way they, they fight back is, you know, the, the urban bourgeoisie links up with the, the gorillas in the mountains. I mean, you know, that's classic third worldism. That's, that's great. Except he's a monarchist. I mean, obviously, you know, what are you going to do? But I think it's an elected monarch or something like that. Isn't, isn't yes. Yes. It's an, an elected, elected monarch. An elected queen. Yes. Sure. Yes. It's just an honorific apparently because it's a fairy tale. You have to do a head nod to the fairy tale like iconography right and terminology mm-hmm. and i think now she's uh, canonically but, a disney princess so that's good for her oh well, yeah i mean disney owns her she was a uh, queen and leia was a princess so so she's a disney princess this is yeah this is like a big you know not to go off on too much of a tangent but like this is where the two sides of my personality are really at war because I'm like, it sucks so much that one corporation owns so much of the IP of like all of our beloved childhood memories, but also like all those like X-Men Star Wars crossover comics from the eighties. Like, are we going to get that movie at some point? Are we going to see like Cyclops duke it out with Mace Windu or something? Like, cause I'd, I'd see it. I mean, you know, I'm just putting that out there. I'll write it if you want me to Disney, but I would definitely see it. 
No, I know that that I find is uh, the two parts of my brain that are also at, at war with itself. I like, enjoy, love a lot of the stuff that they're doing. It's mm-hmm. it's it's sort of the no ethical consumption under capitalism thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is also part of this the political strategy of the no, of the anti globalization movement that Naomi Klein talks about in No Logo is like, you know, just saying like you actually don't get to just you know pollute the visual space of our entire culture with your branding without us also getting to fuck with your branding. Like if you're going to, you know, literally colonize our minds, then like, actually we do own the Coca-Cola Loco because it's like part of our subconscious. So, you know, you don't just, you don't get to keep it anymore. And like Star Wars for me is like Greek mythology or it's like the history plays with Shakespeare or anything. It's this like giant sprawling epic that I can't imagine the world without. And so the idea that just like one company gets to decide what to do with that, that sucks, you know, and like I haven't been sued yet. And, and I think I probably have a decent like fair use parody argument. But like most of my argument is like, fuck you, man. Like you don't get to have sole ownership of this thing that like they didn't create alone. I mean, you know, all of these sort of like franchises, the fans create them as much as the creators do. And ideas that come from fan fiction, like find their way back into the property. It's, it's So it's totally this like this cycle and just pretending like it's this one way stream where they just, you know, kind of shower down on us like benevolent gods. It's like it doesn't actually work that way. And I refuse to pretend that it does. And so I'm going to like write, you know, my jokes about Yoda having a stacked stock portfolio. I think that's my right. Or a beneficent cancer, as uh, George Vickas says in your play. <laughs> like that phrase, beneficent cancer. <laughs> yeah, what's that? What's that like? So this is part before the kind of face turn of George Lucas, where maybe I'll just read that part. So basically, you know, he's talking about, you know, Star Wars is just a brand. What are you talking about with all this political subtext? Uh, you totally have it wrong. And my character says, are you kidding me? You wrote the original trilogy as a metaphor about Vietnam. The rebels were a stand-in for the VC. Don't you see that so-called free market globalization is just a rebranding of the imperialism you criticized in the original trilogy? I mean, hello, the bad guys are literally called the Empire. And then George Lucas gives this... Uh, rather lengthy monologue where he says, honestly, no, I don't. As financial barriers fall between countries, we will unite the whole world in a shared vision of progress through enterprise, of free elections and free press and free markets. We no longer have to treat capitalism like something we found sticking to the bottom of our shoe. We can celebrate the initiative of small business owners like Joe McIntyre, who I met in Ames, Iowa. Joe is an executive at a mon pop petrochemical conglomerate. Right now, his company is liberating the oppressed oil from the tar sands of Canada and bringing freedom to the natural gas of North Dakota. People like Joe the Gas Man are the innovators, the job creators, and the income generators that keep this great country humming. Even today, some people feel that the American experiment has been a failure. You can't stand up for freedom at every turn, can you? To which we answer, yes, we can. Si se puede, si de woman nang. What's in the best interest of America is in the best interest of the world. We will spread freedom like a wonderful, beneficent cancer until soon it spreads even without our prompting. A new revolution is spreading across the world. Not a bloody revolution like in those bad dark days of old, but a new peaceful revolution led by nice white people in nice suits and clean cut minorities who also wear suits and cool tech billionaires who wear sneakers and jeans, but who also own very nice suits for special occasions. A revolution that will lift all boats with a common tide, a tide like the one that brought the Arabella to Massachusetts. And like that tide, it will vastly improve the lives of low income people and minorities throughout the globe by bringing them hot new products like beads, blankets and sneakers. 
just to give just to give the audience a taste of what they're in for. I feel like that thought, I feel like that scene hit different the second time reading, knowing that like Disney has the bug in the thing. It's just like George Lucas under duress. <laughs> he's like blinking SOS yeah, yeah, as he's right. reading. He's like, yeah, I'll tell yeah. you what you want. Like, yeah. His hair flopping like, around. I like that too. Like, I actually like, got, you know, Disney has fought, you know, Lucas and Star Wars. And like, that sounds like something that you like ride the carousel of progress and that would be the propaganda fed to you. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That they've not only bought, you know, the intellectual property and because obviously George Lucas has no you know, has no day-to-day say in running Star Wars anymore. And yet he's right. the person I'm pitching it to because it's more fun to pitch to George Lucas than whoever. Um, right. So yeah, in my version, in my sort of alternate universe, not only did they buy Star Wars, but they sort of literally bought George Lucas. <laughs> they hired <laughs> they him. Can, they can say and do whatever they want. Well, no, but I mean, like, that also allows you to give him a very lovely character arc. That like I kept there you go. I kept changing wildly my opinion of this version of the George Lucas character. And I was constantly moving back and forth until by the end where I was like, Oh, I knew it, George. I knew it. I knew you were still this guy. I knew this is who you really were. Um and then it goes back to paranoia. Yeah. One of my um professors in grad school named Kelly Stewart talks about how people, you know, almost like their bodies can be like taken over by language. And that was kind of what I was trying to do in this is like, is like this discourse is so, you know, hegemonic at this point, this kind of neoliberal problem that it really becomes like a, like a, a virus or like a brain worms or something like it, it takes you yeah, like an animating and, force. It yeah, like changes yeah. you, your demeanor and how, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's actually very fascinating. Um, do you think Star Wars is inherently left wing or right wing? Yeah, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think. I don't think it's inherently any one thing. I think, you know, I think we could obviously imagine like a very, you know, fascist version of of Star Wars. And certainly, you know, the last of the most recent prequels I found pretty disappointing in the way that it sort of like jettisoned all of the subversive content of the previous movie and like just totally sidelined several beloved like characters who were played by people of color. I think like that totally sucks. But I do think like, you know, it's basically a, a movie about a ragtag bunch of outsiders attacking the system, attacking the powerful. You know, I think, you know, it's like when people always say like, even like AOC will say this sometimes, like it's not about left or right. It's about the people on the bottom versus the people on top. And it's like, well, that's what left and right means. You know, <laughs> like what, the job of the left is to like fight for the disempowered against the powerful. And that's kind of what Star Wars is about. So, you know, I don't think it's inherently one thing or another, but I think it leans left for sure. I think it's easier to make a left-wing Star Wars movie than it is to make a right-wing Star Wars movie. I mean, my whole thing is Star Wars is pastiche, you know, in the end of like he's construction westerns, you know, samurai movies, mysticism. And I think then it's politics are built in the same manner. That's It's also a pastiche of the politics that come from probably all those forms too. I, I mean, you know, definitely to me, like I, you know, I read Akira Kurosawa is vaguely on the left. So maybe it's almost something where it's just like, again, yeah, it's the idea of like, you know, it's like the band of outsiders. Like, you know, like his influence in the Kurosawa films that, you know, you could read as Kurosawa kind of having that too. So it, it's, it's like built in, but not purposeful, maybe. And, you know, if you want to get real, like, woo-woo with it, like the whole idea of the force as this like life force that connects everybody, you know, like that's solidarity, right? Or at least that's like a metaphysics that lends itself to solidarity in the way that like, I think there's always, even in like Christianity, I think there's always like a, a, a sort of potential for a left-wing interpretation just based on the kind of the fact of everybody being equal before god and i think similarly in star wars like the fact that everybody is connected to the force 
kind of means that you have to care about other people in some ways, you know, just the idea of like some kind of numinous mystic connection, I think, I think sort of nudges you towards the left, I would say. I would agree with that too. And that's why it kind of rubs me the wrong way when certain of the films try to make one's force potential more linked to like genes and bloodlines and, and heritage, which- And midichlorians, which, um, which are the tiny bugs that create force or whatever. Ugh. So dumb. Yeah. The way that I choose to read that, look, I have a lot of headcanon because I, for better or worse, like I'm a good Star Wars fan that I came up in a time where it was very difficult for me to process the things about the Star Wars prequels that were um, disappointing, shall we say. And as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of good stuff is there. It's just muddled and like you sort of have to do the work in your head to take it the extra step for it to work. And mm -hmm. I like to believe... I like to believe that the introduction of the midichlorians is sort of further evidence that the Jedi, similar to the Republic, have kind of started to lose their way, where they are quantifying this metaphysical force. They are trying to impose some sort of measurability, some sort of way to quantify it. Instrumental rationality or something, yeah. Yeah, that's my head canon. I don't think it's right, but I but think it's, that's... I think that rules though, Josh. I I'd say go with that. Thank you. I had a Thank I think you. like all great <laughs> all, all all good young nerds, I had a a nerd older cousin, uh cousin Chris who let me read all of his back issues of X-Men and Spider-Man and stuff. This is a very memorable moment for me when I was maybe like, you know, 10 or 11 and we were talking about the clone saga in Spider-Man. And I, he just sort of like, uh, yeah, you don't need to worry about the clone saga. That's not canon. And I was like, well, well how do you decide whether something's canon? And he's like, oh, it's not canon because it sucks. So, right. <laughs> seems like you have a more sophisticated understanding of this process than my cousin Chris, but that's kind of always been my, it's like, oh, it, that's bad. So we're, I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. I interviewed one of the moderators at Wikipedia, which is the Star Wars wiki, which you may have consulted, I'm assuming, during the writing of your play. I did, yeah. Just for, like, local color, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> the the uh, slave uh, uprising like, on the Wookiee planet Tashik is canon. Right. <laughs> um, no, but, like, we talk a lot about uh, the concept of canon and continuity on this podcast. Like, I don't really have a lot of time for... And over concern of canon, I think like you can do anything as long as it doesn't break the story, right? So if you change something or you do something or you uh, you allude to something that actually happened in a different way in that novel or in that other movie, as long as it's not something so clearly different that that everyone in the audience is going to go, huh, what? Then you're probably fine. Yeah. It's like the folk memory, like whatever someone can be reasonably expected to remember while they're watching it, as long as what the movie is presenting jives with that, I think you're fine. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I, I think me. for me, it's like, it's about the emotional truth of it rather than the literal truth. Like, you know, like, I feel like I, I, I've been enjoying the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series and I feel like it's like, yeah, this this is kind of what I imagine him to have been like in the years before the first movie that he's like hanging out in the desert as a weirdo and like occasionally gets called upon to do Jedi shit. And like that makes sense to me. And so it doesn't bother me that like the fact that he's still going by the last name Kenobi, <laughs> which is like, you know, obviously very a very stupid thing to be doing. Like that doesn't bother me. Like I, I clock it, but then I just sort of throw it out the window because it's like, I, and also like with the prequels, I'll say like, 
this is less true of episode one, but on two and three, like George Lucas was working on the script while they were building the sets. So the dramaturgy is not always completely airtight. Like he was, these well, are not, these are not 30th drafts, right? So am I wrong on this? No, 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 you are 100% correct. George Lucas's filmmaking process, I think as a writer, this is sort of anathema. Like we, have a hard time wrapping our heads around this but for george lucas his process of making movies and the prequels in particular was not the normal you write a script you nail the script then you move on to this you move on it's sort of one thing that's happening sort of all together and there are different phases so the design and concept work is feeding the creation of the story he starts with he knows generally like a bunch of things that he wants to have happen. He has some ideas for sequences. He goes to the art department and says, see what you can come up with for like a pod race or whatever for like, you know, like a, like a star Wars version of the chariot race from Ben Hur. Right. He knows he wants that. Just think about it for a little bit. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Is that a, a light and so magic from, reference? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will, I will also say, yeah, sorry. It's just, just quick side by like i think the pod racing scene fucking rules i think it's so good i think it goes super hard i think it's really fun i think the fact that there's like a an, a radio announcer who like sounds just like casey Kasem, like that rules <laughs> i think it's really good if you want to give george Lucas a, a break on the midichlorians thing that seems like it could be the kind of thing when a filmmaker does a sequel and they for some reason feel the need to explain something from the previous movie in this case a prequel but it kind of reminds me of like uh um, like in Halloween 2, when John Carpenter didn't really want to make that movie. So I think he just got, I think he says he just got drunk and like wrote the script in a night, but then he decided to make Michael Myers and Laurie Strode's siblings, which is kind of, in my mind, ruins the entire thing. It's just like something that you didn't need to add into a sequel or a prequel, but it's just like, maybe I should explain the force a little bit more. Um, I think and, you know, it's also like a little he bit... wanted, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> I, I think it's also a little bit like they needed some way to explain like this kid has this kid's yeah, got it, yeah. you know, like he's got potential. And like there's a lot of there's, I think, more elegant ways they could have conveyed that. But yeah, exactly. That's part of what they're doing there, too. <laughs> George Lucas describes what his plans for the sequel trilogy were and the midichlorians factor in very heavily. Oh, OK. So that's why my theory I know is not what he was intending. At the time, he was introducing a concept that he planned to follow up on later. It's not just a convenient workaround, huh? Okay. No. Yeah. You said something earlier, and I think you actually say it in the play as well. You compare the process of writing a play to the process of screenwriting and how screenwriting is more rigid. Yeah. My Nana says um, that. Yeah. My, my, my Nana Beth is a character, and it's in yeah. that conversation where... You know, she's like, your plays are so great. And I'm like, yeah, but screenwriting is so rigidly structured in writing plays. Yeah. Um, so that is the author speaking, literally, and <laughs> the character, right? Do you find playwriting a more freeing experience than screenwriting? Yeah, I do. I think it's also just like, that's where my love is. I mean, I like movies, but I'm not, I, I watch, you know, maybe three or four movies a month. I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not like a watch a movie every day type of guy like a lot of my friends are. It's just, I like a lot of art forms. I mean, I like novels. I like poetry. I like jazz. But but theater is the one that feels like that's where my heart is. Um, and so, you know, recently I've been trying, I've been working on a couple of, you know, not screenplays, but I'm right, I'm working on a television pilot. And I've tried to tried to have a little bit more of my sense of like, me and my own sensibility and my own sense of humor and my own politics and stuff 
as part of that project. And I think it's gone okay. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it's just like a, it's just a slightly different, I mean, not slightly different. It's a significantly different art form. So it sort of feels like starting from square one in a, in a certain perspective. I mean, there's this like old joke, I forget who said it, but it's like, the joke is like, what do you do after you're done writing your screenplay? And the answer is to go back in and fill in all the dialogue, you know, which is like dialogue is kind of the main thing in plays, you know, I mean, it's dialogue as a way to, 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 to pursue action, but the way that people in primarily the way the, the action that people or the, the tactic people use to pursue their goals in a play is they talk to people and they tell people stuff and they ask people stuff and they accuse people of stuff. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what you do in a play is you talk, you know, and I love talking and I, I, I have great admiration for sort of the great talkers, but that's like primarily not what you do in a movie, you know, I mean, there are some exceptions, but most of them are, you know, pretty stagey. Based on plays. Too. Yeah. yeah. Right. Based on right. plays, you know, but like, yeah, it was interesting. I actually interviewed um, Andre Gregory from my dinner with Andre. And I asked him, like, why is that, you know, you mostly worked in theater. Like, why is that a play? And he was like, oh, I didn't think it would work if you couldn't do close-ups on all the food. Which I thought was great. Wow. <laughs> so he was wow. like, that, that could only be a film, you know? Okay, sure. But yeah, I don't know. It's like, it definitely feels like there is more of a structure. Obviously, you don't necessarily have to follow that structure. And I also think most people who've watched any decent number of movies probably have that structure more or less, like, in their bones, you know? So I think probably... Right there's a certain amount of just like muscle memory you can go off of as somebody who watches movies. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure why I've found writing movies so much more difficult than writing plays. It's, it's a little bit mysterious to me. Well, you know, you made me think of something when you said that uh, you're trying your hand at writing a pilot that has, mm -hmm. you know, more of your political sensibilities, because when you are writing a film or a TV show, you have to have the marketplace in your mind. Like, who is this for? Who's going to make this? Yeah. How much is it going to cost? Yeah. Right. Like, where is this going to fit in in the marketplace? That's just something you just have to do, whether consciously or subconsciously, or if you worry about it once you've written it or, you know, I think it even like prunes your your totally. ideas totally. of like what has legs. Right. How Whereas many external a... night shots can we afford? Yeah, totally. That's something you have to think about. Yeah. But like when you're writing a play, I mean, you need money because you need to make a living. But for it to be the thing, you don't need that much capital. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done plays for, you know, the last play that I did, I think, had a budget of around like $15,000, which is not nothing. I mean, it's a shitty car. You could buy a shitty car or you could put on my play. But it's an amount of money that you and, you know the 15 other people that it takes to put on a play could probably fundraise from your friends and family. You know, I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of privilege speaking in that, but you know, I don't come from a lot of money. I come from a like normal middle-class family, but I feel like that's a, that's an achievable amount of money to raise. Whereas, you know, even a low budget movie is many, many, many times that amount. So I think that's certainly part of it. Speaking of, and please let me know if this is too personal, but I was really affected by the part in the play oh, sure. where I think your character is explaining to to George Lucas. Uh, yeah, George Lucas is the... like, George Lucas thinks that I'm a spy. And so he's kind of makes me, you know, prove to him that I'm genuine in my sort of anti-capitalist, anti-corporate elite uh, politics. Yeah. And so... So the way that I decide to do that is by telling him the story of how the 2008 financial crisis destroyed my family, <laughs> which, you know, in a nutshell, is like, you know, 
credit got very difficult and my dad had a store selling, you know, uh, uh, furniture, but kind of orthopedic furniture. And it became impossible for most of his customers to buy the, his products because, you know, credit was much harder to come by and they were usually, you know, more expensive than people could afford to buy in kind of one go. And so he fell behind on his rent. And so he got locked out of the store and went bankrupt and got depressed and, you know, and, and had a motorcycle accident, um, which who knows how much that was related to the other stress going on in his life or how much it was just a random weird thing that happened. I've decided to kind of draw those causation lines a little bit in the play, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sad story. Um, that, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about, you know, kind of what has happened to my family since then. Suffice to say, I think we're all better off now than we were even before all of that happened. But yeah, I mean, my dad had a store that employed, you know, about a dozen people, um, you know, with with like good work that was, you know, not just selling some shitty product people didn't need, but was selling products that actually improved people's lives. And, um, you know, because he was a somewhat successful small business person, he was able to, you know, kind of support local charities and, you know, the church and Boy Scouts and stuff like that and kind of contribute financially to the life of the community. And um, and all of that got just totally destroyed. Um, and, you know, it it makes me so mad even just thinking about it, you know, just how much money... No, I the government is fine shelling out to people who already have plenty of money. I mean, look, like I make, I'm not, I'm not complaining, but I make a a quite modest amount of money and I pay a third of my paycheck to taxes every year. And like, I've been thinking about this with the, you know, the student loan forgiveness thing, which I think, you know, isn't enough, but is still great. And all of these like Republican senators are like, how dare they get their loans forgiven? And the white house Twitter account was like posting like, but didn't you get $50 million of PPE loans forgiven? And it's like, wait, so we just gave a Senator $50 million. Like we gave a Congressperson millions of dollars of money that they, that we knew they weren't going to have to pay off. Like that's considered, like, it just makes me, I, I, I get, I get sort of too emotional to talk about it at a certain point because it's just like, there's nothing that the state under capitalism won't do to prop up the rich and there's nothing that they will do to make the lives of the poor less horrible. Well, the thing about that monologue, that moment, you know, which is interesting that uh, you put it in as a response to the feedback you got that it wasn't emotional enough because because it, it certainly hit me in the uh, the feels. Yeah, my but... da- I, I just want to say, you know, like my my dad just worked incredibly hard for a really, really long time. You know, I mean, there were parts of my childhood when I really didn't see him for months at a time because he was just pouring everything he had into this business. And when the crisis happened, like none of that mattered, you know, and it just and, you know, yeah. obviously, like, yes, hard work doesn't necessarily create success. And I know that. But it still sucks to see it happen, to see somebody that you care about working really hard and and just getting just getting left out you know, when they were deciding, you know, where to throw money at to try to slow that down this financial crisis. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, first off, thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to your family. And you don't, I understand the impulse to caveat it with, you know, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody. I get that. But, but that does not make what happened to your dad and 
your yeah. family any less horrible. So just I want to make that clear. But the reason why I love this moment in your play. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, you do a great thing where it's immediately followed up the lightsaber fight. Yeah, it's followed immediately afterwards by George Lucas getting his hand chopped off by a lightsaber. Because, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's no, and Quentin no. Tarantino and feet and George Lucas and hands. There's something going on there. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think you're right. Actually, that's good observation. But the reason why I love that moment is because it really, for me, actually tied the whole play together. Mm. Because, you know a lot of the things that we're talking about here are kind of abstractions when we're talking about it, right? Yeah. And what you do so wonderfully in this play is you take that abstraction and you make it entertaining and accessible by dressing it up in the guise of Star Wars. So that's great. Uh, but what this does is it shows the ground level reality, the real price of what this is in a personal way. And the fact that it comes from you, your character, who is sort of the audience identification figure, or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Mm -hmm. It really brings home what this is all about, what the abstract big ideas about the IMF and the global financial system is about. And this is perhaps a little bit of a stretch, but you're talking about how for you, Star Wars is just kind of this mythology that's always existed. And, you know, those are the stories that we go to, that we tell ourselves to deal and make sense of the parts of living life of yeah. being human that suck. That's how we get through it, right? Yeah, so yeah. for me, that just really, the rug really tied the room together is what I'm, is what I'm trying to tell you. It's like, <laughs> And part of the sort of secret architecture of that moment that I don't know how much this comes through. I don't I don't think I really mentioned this in the play is that like Star Wars was like a thing that I loved as a kid that I loved as a kid with my dad. You know, so like the yeah, there's right. a reason yes, why yeah. those two things are, you know, are connected. Right. Yes. My dad's favorite place to take a nap <laughs> when I was a kid was at a Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then again, like the fact that you followed it up with a lightsaber fight is just, mwah, it's just. And I will say, you know, we had the the we used the same fight choreographer for the original production at Columbia and the second version that we did at at IRT in Manhattan because she walked into the room on the first day of rehearsal and was like, "All right, what you guys need to understand is that there are six main schools of lightsaber battling," and I was like, "Great, I will hire you <laughs> right. whenever I get a chance." <laughs> Like, that's like amazing. I didn't know that, but that is exactly what I want to hear. Like, we are in very, very good hands. That's amazing. So you said this is the play of yours that has gotten you the most attention. Oh, yeah, which um, I should plug. Yeah, so there's a production of this going up in Chicago at Otherworld Theater next spring, April 28th through May 14th. So you can go to otherworldtheater.org for more news and information about that. Uh, yes. Okay, that's my, I've done that. I wasn't going to let you leave without mentioning that. But um, I was just wondering, do you find that it's more Star Wars fans sort of enjoying this or like fellow travelers finding things in this that they respond to? It's like, that's you know, who does this, yeah. who do you find really comes out of the woodwork and approaches you about this? Yeah, that's interesting. I think ideally, I think that people like you three, I think the people who are the overlap is the sweet spot. But honestly, <laughs> I'm a little confused sometimes about like, whether this is a play, like what's the spoonful of sugar and what's the medicine, like whether I'm using leftist politics to make people listen to me talk about Star Wars or whether I'm using Star Wars to make, let, make people listen to me about leftist politics. But yeah, I think it works kind of equally well with, with each group. There are definitely people who've never seen a Star Wars movie who saw the play and were like, that was so fun. I totally followed everything. But at the same time, you know, I think there are 
there are some references that like only leftists are going to get like you know it's i don't explain what no logo is but like that's a little bit of a time capsule that's maybe kind of funny to some people and there are certainly some star wars jokes that are pretty deep cut but hopefully it's a play that rewards kind of prior reading you know but doesn't require it and that's something i try to do with all my plays i'm gonna try to find elegant ways to like get all the information to you that i need you to know for all the other shit to make sense but ideally there's not you're not walking in saying like i've never i don't i don't know who trotsky is so i'm not going to be able to follow any of this like any of that stuff i i try to i try to explain so that you know kind of any reasonably intelligent person off the street could could go to my stuff and enjoy it one of the things you touch on here that I really like is uh, like the like relationships and conflicts within a larger progressive movement. And it seems mm-hmm. just kind of looking at the summaries of like some of your other plays that like that's definitely recurring. Oh, you yeah, like the, sure. those kinds of relationships. Yeah. 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 My next I'm actually, you know, I don't know exactly when this is going to happen, but I'm going to have my play called Occupy Prescott published by the same publisher that published this one, the Trade Federation. And that's a play that's about it's about, you know, Occupy happened in New York, but also happened all over the world. And, and it happened in some places where it was like five people. You know, and so my play Occupy Prescott imagines a sort of an Occupy site in this town in northern Arizona, Prescott, Arizona, where it's like the five people who show up are like an anarchist punk and like a sort of radical Catholic priest and the lady who owns the crystal shop and like a pissed off libertarian rancher and like a nurse who's a single mom. And they try to kind of find some common ground and, and, you know, the sort of action of the play is that they're trying to like write their statement. That's like, here's what we believe, you know, which everybody says the reason Occupy didn't work is because they didn't have, you know, a manifesto, like manifestos have such a great track record, you know, but, you know, so the, the, the process of them kind of trying to find some common ground is sort of the action of that play. And that's something I'm certainly fascinated by, you know, leftist infighting is like, that's, that's my stuff. Yeah. I love it. Oh, well, that's sort of the, the story of the history of, of leftist movements, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. The infighting is, 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 well, that's, is sort of... Yeah, that's certainly part of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, if someone has gotten this far and they are curious about what they heard, where online can they find you and where can they purchase a copy of this play and your other plays? Yeah, um, th- so they can go to andyjboy.com to find out more about me and all the stuff that I'm doing. Also, if they have a new Play Exchange account, I'm on there. I just search for Andy Boyd. And to find this play, probably the best way is just a Google search, the Trade Federation, No Passport Press, and it should come up pretty easily. Oh, and one more plug is my podcast, which I, I'm much less diligent about putting out episodes than you folks are, but I co-host a socialist theater podcast called Better Than Shakespeare, which started out as a George Bernard Shaw podcast, but is now just a kind of everything lefty podcast. And we're we're really on a tear through the place of Carol Churchill at the moment. So if you want to hear us talk about Carol Churchill plays, check that out. I also am the main host of New Books in Performing Arts, where I interview you know, all sorts of performing art people. But if you enjoy this conversation specifically, then Better Than Shakespeare is the, the place to go. Well, I actually have a very uh, long drive coming up tomorrow and I uh, need something to listen to. So I'm definitely going to check that You'll out. You'll be annoyed at the editing, but uh, hopefully the content will make up no, for it. No, I won't be. I won't be annoyed. Okay, it's good. not me talking, so I won't be annoyed at it. <laughs> well, I want to thank our guest, Andy, for joining us and being so gracious with his time. You can find links to all of the places he just mentioned in the show notes. Transcripts of this episode and all of our episodes are available at trashcompod.com. And we are Trashcompod across all social media. And we will see you on the next one.